Today's reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 19, through chapter 16, verse 17. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your, of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it and your household before the Lord your God year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind, or has any serious blemish whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it, as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, And at the feast of booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you.
This is the word of the Lord. Sovereign Grace Churches, the family of churches or denomination is the other word we would use for what Kingsway is a part of. We have what is called shaping virtues. Just the other year, we released a couple of virtues that we as a family of churches uh, believe that encompass the culture that we have and our virtues, not that we've attained, but virtues that we believe speak to us and what we strive for. One such virtue is joy, which is the topic we're going to be studying this morning. This is what Sovereign Grace Churches says regarding this shaping virtue of joy. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people. As believers, hear and embrace the good news of salvation by grace alone. The natural response is to rejoice. In the gospel, God gives us himself. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I love Psalm 16. Christians are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. Because the gospel is a source of joy that can't be touched by any circumstance in life. Even in our suffering and sorrows, we can rejoice knowing this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. What a phrase, eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This kind of joy becomes contagious in local churches and is especially reflected in our corporate worship. Kingsway, I feel like we can say amen to that. That's what we feel in this room. I could could have written that. That's what we could all say. It's so good. And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning as it relates to worship, to the feast of Israel. And just to clarify a quick caveat, joy is is different than happiness. Happiness is that emotional state that's dependent on your circumstances. Joy is what we just read. It is based on the bedrock foundation of the good news of the gospel. No one takes your joy away. Circumstances, you you can cry when your dog dies. This isn't saying grin and bear it and just smile and say, all is well in 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 a robotic, apathetic way. We can, as Christians, we, we know better than anyone what suffering is like. But we, more than anyone, understand what true joy is, that fullness of joy the psalmist writes in Psalm 16. So for the text that we're studying this morning, for the people of Israel, their worship would include three feasts. The feast of tabernacle, excuse me, oh my goodness, all right. The feast of Passover and unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. These were pilgrim feasts. They were to go to, ultimately, Jerusalem three times a year, once in spring, Passover, once in summer for harvest or weeks, and then once in fall for booths or tabernacles. might be another title you would hear it by. And so three traveling pilgrimage feasts to Jerusalem. These feasts, again, occurred three times, and everything that we've been studying the last couple weeks in Deuteronomy kind of come to a close. This is a bookend to a section within Deuteronomy. When Matthew talked about the exclusivity of worship, God prescribes the worship. 
we respond to that revelation of worship. We don't go, well, I love God, so let me get out my box of crayons and a piece of paper and imagine what he's like, and then let me live my life how I think is right, and that, of course, has to please God. God tells us what to do because he spoke first. He made us. We're in his image. We are the creature. He's the creator. We don't create a God of our imaginations. We follow the God and Lord of the universe. So that worship is in this text of feasts, the Feast of Israel. But then also what Quinn talked about two weeks ago relating to tithing and and sacrificial generous worship That's also present in this text. So we learn that worship is exclusive and there is a prescribed, privileged way to worship the Lord. There's also an aspect of worship that is sacrificial. It's giving. True worship requires some skin in the game, if you will. And so for us this morning, also Deuteronomy 14.23. Look with me really quick there. 14.23. So this is in Quinn's text that he preached. Notice what he says. So Passover, you kill an animal. In harvest, you give grain. In fall, that's when wine, grapes, and olives are all there, all right? So those are the three, the three things you're bringing with those feasts. Notice what the tithe requires in verse 23. All right, here we go. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and of the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Wait a minute. We're talking about that here this morning. So worship and celebrating and privileged worship are all connected together. Who would have thought, who would have thought on the math equation, all right, guys, stop doing it the way you want to do it. Obey God the way that he tells you to do it and Put some skin in the game. This plus that equals what? We would all say something I don't like if we were honest. If we were being honest. No, I'd prefer, you know, I've got some management skills. I can kind of tell you how we can optimize what worship could look like. This might, we might offend some people if we do it this way. And well, the Lord would understand if I didn't give generously or sacrificially. So, We can modify this, but what we find in the Feast of Israel, in the text that we're studying in chapter 16 specifically, we find that privileged, exclusive worship plus sacrificial worship equals a joyous celebration of the Lord. What a combination we have. So to worship God as he prescribes and to do so generously and sacrificially is a communal act of joyous celebration. This isn't just individuals, me and Jesus type persons that are going to Jerusalem. You brought your family. You went with all of Israel. Your your neighbors were going to Jerusalem. It was communal. It was communal in nature. And it was a celebration. It was joyous. There was wine included. It was a good time. It was a party. And it was worship. It was worship. In verse 15 of chapter 16, I believe this to be the summary point, the purpose of all three of these feasts. All three of these feasts. This is what Moses says. So that, so that you will be 
altogether joyful. Worshiping God, as he tells us, obeying his loving rule in our lives and offering what we have that was only there because he gave it to us results in the happy state of joyous celebration as God's people. One of the other distinctions between the worship that we've been talking about in weeks prior and the text we're looking at today is that when we look at the prescribed nature of worship and we look at the sacrificial nature of worship, that's what I'd say is a vertical line between us and God. This is speaking a lot of how God wants us to respond to him. And this text is no less vertical in a sense of how God wants us to worship him. But I want you to notice that the axis has changed to horizontal. The idea behind this feast and worship is that it's celebratory, that it's we, we get to enjoy something and that it's not just we individually, but it's us as the church and not just us as the church, but those that are far off, the widow and the fatherless, the sojourner, the ones that, that are less fortunate that we've lent credit to as Matthew taught last week. The question that's raised from this text for us, King's Way, is do we view our sacrificial, generous worship of God as he prescribes in his holy word to be a celebratory, regular, communal activity? We're, we're really good. We're really good as Bible-believing Christians to go, God said it, you better do it. La, 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 I'm not hearing you. You have to obey. Do this and make sure it hurts a little bit when you give. How often do we run to the other side, to, the, to the, the tone of this text and say to worship the Lord, as Psalm 16 says, is fullness of joy. For you to give up idols, for you to repent of your sins and turn to Christ is not living in a box. It's blessedness. It's the good life. It's everything that you wanted with that silly thing that you're pursuing. And it's more because this promised something it couldn't deliver. But Christ Jesus delivers everything we thought we wanted and more because we are his, we are made in his image and he as creator knows, he knows our form. He knows our need and he generously supplies it all in the cross of Christ. These feasts inform the attitude and the affection we ought to have for God in every season of our life. Just as they are in seasons, we go through seasons. We're, none of us are farmers, maybe. Maybe some of us are farmers. I know I have livestock. That's what bees are technically. So I can relate a lot with this. But we go through seasons in our lives. And the feasts inform the attitude and affection we ought to have for God in every season of our life. Joy isn't like, all right, guys, you know, when you get saved, I know that's great. Here's some joy. Make sure you enjoy that great virtue and this great fruit of the gospel. But when this happens, I'm sorry, that's just not on the menu this week. Just, that's, a, that's, a seasonal, that's a seasonal attribute of the gospel. Not, not available now, but just wait. In a couple of weeks, it'll be back on the table. For us, the attitude and response of joy is on the table at all times for all who have turned to faith in Jesus Christ.
Prescribed, sacrificial, and joyous worship are for happy and joyful Christians. Worship is for the downcast and heavy laden. Worship is for the overwhelmed and the worried, the anxious, the suffering, the victim, the outlier, the doubting, the cynical, the embittered, the cold and apathetic, the burnt out, those that feel lost as a pilgrim. Note that these feasts were for the priest, for men and women, the widows, the bondservants, the needy from your town. These feasts cover the literal seasons of Israel's life and the qualities, the quality of life of everyone in Israel. And yet, Moses prescribes these feasts. Obedience demands that they celebrate. Everyone is welcome in Israel to come to these feasts. Grab your neighbor, we're going to Jerusalem, we're having a party. These feasts represent a regular cadence, a recounting of the gospel, not to stir up a self-righteousness, not I believe in Jesus and that cross and you know what, I've made some great life decisions and you haven't. And so this is just a reminder that I've done some great things in my life and you probably need to catch up with me. Not at all. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've taught in this pulpit and believed in this church and affirm and proclaim thoroughly is not by any works that we bring to the table. Christ Jesus died for me and God opened my dead eyes to see something I would have never seen apart from his grace. That is the only reason. And God, as a continuing grace, says, church, lift your eyes to Calvary. Make a purposeful, repeated point to not forget. These feasts are to grant us a holy, divine perspective on all of life and to grant us a thorough grip on that divine perspective of all of life that impacts us, that drives us so that when we are in the season of misery and suffering and hurt, we're joyful because the cross speaks a better word. The point of today's sermon is this. Worship the Lord by celebrating regularly for all he has done for you in Christ. Worship the Lord joyfully by celebrating regularly what he's done for you in Christ. Today's outline will be those three, for, for those, I know, I know when we read those, that long passage, some of you guys just let it wash over you and it, that, that's totally fine. That's how I am most weeks. There was three sections to it, three feasts. So there was Passover, weeks, booths. That's how I'm outlining it. So first we're gonna look at Passover, then we're gonna look at weeks, and then we're gonna look at booths. And I've titled it very simply what the point of each of those feasts are. So point one, celebrate salvation. Point two, celebrate God's provision. Point three, celebrate God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the takeaway. Community group leaders, this is what we're asking in group. How are you celebrating salvation? How are you more aware of salvation? 
How are you more aware of God's, how are you celebrating God's provision and the new life that he's given? Family, how are you celebrating God's steadfast love this year and in the years to come? That's, that is the simple truth of this text for us today. So let's look at celebrating salvation. This is chapter 15, verse 19 through chapter 16, verse eight. Out of all three of these feasts, if I was to poll, this is probably the one that we're most familiar with. Passover, we're pretty familiar. This represents the, the time Israel was in Egypt and they had to kill Mary's little lamb and put the blood on the, the, the doorposts and it protected the firstborn of the house. The last plague in Egypt, God promised to remove and kill and take away the firstborn of every, every house in Egypt. Every house that included the Hebrew people that lived in Goshen. Everyone was under God's judgment. Every household was under God's judgment. But God made a provision for his people that if they were to kill an animal, remove the life from that animal, the life of the firstborn would not be removed from the household, whoever had blood marking the doorway. And so there was a response of Israel or the Hebrews to, to, to do that and receive salvation. But the death provided life. This feast, it was a, the feast of Passover was a remembrance of the Passover meal, all right? So there's the feast that was celebrated every spring, the month of Abib. I think of about, um, I think about Aladdin, Prince Abibu, every time I say Abib. So there's Abib, the month of Abib, which is March through April, month, the months of March through April, where they would celebrate Passover, remembering Passover. They would take an animal from their herd. It didn't have to be a lamb because it wasn't the Passover meal. It wasn't what was happening in Exodus. Remember in Exodus, after they did that, they had to rush out. They had to rush out. They left. So a lamb, they're, they're eating a lamb. You, you could feed a family with one lamb. Now with a Passover feast, you could take something bigger. You could do, you could do a, a cow if you wanted because the, the feast, you ate it for a week. So a cow for a whole family and all your neighbors and all those in need, you, you were killing something bigger. And you would take that to Jerusalem, you would slay it, and you would celebrate, remembering what God had done in Egypt. This is also combined with another feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I feel like I need like a, a whiteboard or something to help connect this and connect the dots. I promise it makes sense. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast where you ate unleavened bread for six days. All right, so there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Passover you kill an animal and you eat unleavened bread for seven days. So you kill it, usually like Thursday night, you kill it and then you eat unleavened bread. Well, it makes sense to connect it since you're already eating unleavened bread. So you would celebrate them both together. And so Moses, it makes sense that Moses connects them here. Passover, remembering what God had done in Egypt and then unleavened bread to remember that they left in haste for the promised land, that they were going somewhere that they were suffering and that God had made a promise all the way back in Genesis to Abraham, I will give you a land. We already have a people, but now the next, the next scoreboard dink, is land. We're heading there. God's saving you and we're going somewhere. So 
what was expected during this feast. You, play, you would travel to the place that God has chosen, which is Jerusalem. You kill that animal. You prepare unleavened bread. And lastly, you would celebrate. You would joyfully celebrate. So the significance of this feast could easily be a sermon in itself, but going to give, I'm going to give a broad overview through two categories. There's more of like a tactile, physical calendar significance, and then there's a theological significance. So the tactile, let's look at that. The purpose of having this feast, these three feasts, this goes for all three of them. The point of having these three feasts was to cause Israel to pause as they started the new year. For us, we're, we're not in an agrarian culture. So when, when January 1st hits, that's the new year for us. But when, when the, the world's still cold and dead in one sense, you don't start until things start budding. So for them, Passover was a new year feast. And so as they started the new year, as they started getting their calendar out, planning their annual goals, looking out their kitchen window and seeing how much their herd is multiplied, God says, pause before the new year starts, before you start making those plans. Remember, don't just remember, celebrate. Celebrate where you were and where you're going. Secondly, not only, well, I've already said that, it's celebration. So the spiritual significance. The second category for Passover is the theological significance of this. The worship and celebration and perspective of Passover was tied to the fact, think about this, think about, try to draw this close to you and where you're at currently, what you've dealt with this week. So all the joys or the problems that the new year would create, because there's some Israelites at this point. Yeah, they, they looked out and they saw a bunch of, a bunch of cows, you know, they're, they're, they've multiplied. This is awesome. But think about other Israelites where they look out and their herd died. Great. You know, how am I going to make it through this year? And then you hear this command to go, to travel, which is no small deal. It's not like you just get in your minivan and head over to Jerusalem. This is a travel. There's a lot of work to be done because I lost, I've lost so much this year. God prescribes it because again, the point is divine perspective. God's people during this feast not only thought about who they were, but of God who was their salvation. So think about the whole, yes, life, the cows are dead or the cows are alive. All of that was possible because we exited. We had an exodus from Egypt. Where I'm at is because I was not there. I am living in a blessed state because God saved me from slavery. Yes, it's tough. This year could be tough. This year could be joyous. But I know this is the truth. I'm not a slave in Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. An animal took the place of my son who's working in the field. What a perspective. What a reason to celebrate. And so they would go, and it wasn't just a casual celebration. This was the people of God existing in the land and being saved from Egypt. Again, being impossible apart from the grace and the mercy of God. They traveled on the road to Jerusalem and the soil their feet touched was the land that God promised in Egypt. That's, it's not only just a celebration, it, the, you, you get to walk with your family, with possessions, 
when you once had no possession in a land you once didn't own with a family that could have died. And you get to go to Jerusalem, the place where God's presence was. And you get to celebrate and be joyful for what he's done for you. So for us as Christians, what does it look like to relate to Passover? An Israelite could say, once I was a slave, but now I'm free in a physical sense. We as Christians get to say so in a spiritual sense. Once we were enslaved to sin and death, but now in Christ, through his exodus, through him dying, not just for my firstborn, but for my whole household, for the people of God, now I am free. And I have something far better than land. I have been blessed in the heavenly places. What Matthew read, Ephesians 1, verse 3. So should we practice a Seder meal? Should we commission Quentin Cools to go to Jerusalem and uh, with a group of us and we bring our cows and offer a sacrifice? Is that how we are to worship in this text? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Under the new covenant, there is no authority of these feasts in our lives. These feasts point to a greater reality of new wineskins. And as the New Testament would say, it would be foolish, foolish to put new wine in old wineskins. We do not celebrate these feasts, period. The reality of these feasts for us today is that the Passover, the Passover lamb is Jesus and that Jesus died for his church and that we are here regularly meeting on Sunday mornings, practicing the Lord's Supper, which we will have at the conclusion, remembering and celebrating the state that we have this year because of Jesus. Worship is prescribed. If you want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. Worship is sacrificial. Christ died so that you might live. Romans 12, now therefore, in view of the mercies of God, in view of Christ dying in your place, present yourself as a living sacrifice. You are the sacrifice. Your life looks different. It looks different. If you claim to love Jesus, but you love sin, habitually, continually, unrepentedly, brother or sister, there's pause because what the gospel teaches us, new life means new life. God saved us from something to something greater. Saved us from slavery to Canaan. And we can't say, have you tried out that new Egyptian restaurant and I love being a slave and we're going, hey, I thought you said you're in Canaan. Well, I'm just visiting Egypt for a couple days. Don't worry about it. Inconsistencies. We are called to a new life. But the glorious truth that we get to excavate from this text, mm, that we get to remember often and regularly, that we get to be joyful, is that the, the load of my sin was taken and all of it, all of it. And I was given new life 
in Jesus. I was adopted into God's family through Jesus. I was given his Holy Spirit that sanctifies me, moves me from one degree of glory to another, from one degree of Christ-likeness to another, and that I have an eternal hope one day. That's reason to rejoice, Kingsway. That's the point of the feasts. So let us be intentional when we come in, and this is the other thing, this is a regular meeting. We meet here every Sunday. We go to community groups. We, we meet with one another. Those are regular, but, but I want to lean in. Just because you attend those things, lean in, ponder. Are you celebrating? Are you joyful? Don't be offended when someone asks you, brother, are you celebrating? Is the gospel good news? When someone tests that in your life, they love you. Because the the gospel is good news. It is thoroughly good news. So for every Christian in this room, we ground in light of this text every year and every season and every event, every happy moment, every trial that we face, every grief that we bear in light of the joyous reality of Jesus saving us from our sins. We use regular gatherings and intentional moments to teach our souls again and again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Passover teaches. Remember first your salvation. So let's turn to the Feast of Weeks. Point two, celebrate God's provision, verses nine through 12. The second annual pilgrim feast of Israel is referred to by Moses as the Feast of Weeks. Elsewhere, you might find it being referred to as the Feast of Harvest, of First Fruits, or Pentecost. Lots of names, it's the same feast. I'll be saying several of them. Don't be lost. We're all together on this. The second feast. So what's, uh, what could we expect from the Feast of Weeks? It gets its title, look at verse nine. Look at verse nine. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. All right? So imagine you're in Israel, you got a bunch of grain. It's harvest time, it's summer. You got wheat and barley, all right? And you take that sickle and you start collecting. The first time you hit that, that's when the timer starts. And then seven weeks later, and one day you celebrate. You celebrate the Feast of Weeks because it's supposed to represent harvest. So that is seven times seven, 49 plus one. My math's impeccable, 50. So 50, when you look at the Old Testament, translate, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the um, LXX or the Septuagint, in Greek, 50 or 50s is Pentecost. So 50, that, that's where we get Pentecost from. So from the time the sickle hits, 50 days later, you're throwing a party, the Feast of Harvest, Pentecost, all right? So you're thinking, wait a minute, I know where that's going. Yes, you're right. We're gonna get to Acts 2 in a minute. So where Passover gave a blood sacrifice in spring, summer you give a wheat or a grain sacrifice, wheat and barley, and Israel was commended um, commanded to take the grain from harvest, the first fruits of their harvest, and go to Jerusalem again. Another party. I would love if we did this. Three times a year, we just had a ginormous party. Um, maybe like a barbecue or something like that in spring. And then we can do salads in summer. And <laughs> maybe instead of wine, we can do bourbon in fall. Who knows? Uh, so Moses also gives us another reason Israel was to observe this feast, which was 
not said, note this, when you read about the Feast of Weeks in other places in the Old Testament, it's, it, it's usually just referred to as harvest. The reason for it, you got grain, tithe to the Lord, give to the Lord, celebrate the Lord. But Moses adds a caveat here that's not in the other places. He says this in verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So he grounds the feast with the same reason for Passover, your salvation from Egypt. So you remember your salvation in spring. I, w- I couldn't have been here. My household couldn't have been here uh, apart from God saving me from there. I'm enjoying God's blessing here. I'm saved. I once was a slave. Now I'm free. And now the fruits that I enjoy in this life, the, the first, the harvest that I get to enjoy and feed my family in this wonderful land that God's provided. You want to know why that's there? Because I saved you from Egypt. That's the ground for this feast. So blessings, blessings are a fruit of salvation, which I I get this sometimes where people ask, why do you guys talk so much about Jesus dying on the cross? Like, can, can you just move past that onto something? There's so much else that we could talk about as a church. We could talk about end times or, or who knows what else is on the table. But, but Jesus on the cross, we get it. He died for our sins. Note the text. Everything else in our life, the blessings that we incur in life is because Christ died on Calvary. The blessings of God mean nothing and are imperceivable, unable to be interpreted apart from his kindness in dying in our place and gifting us righteousness, gifting us eternal life. So grain offerings of wheat and barley showed God's provision for Israel. And not to ruin the story for the nation of Israel, they lacked faithfulness. It was, there was two things that were going on. It showed God's faithfulness to them But later on in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to read about blessings and curses. If you do this, you'll get blessings. If you don't do this, you'll get curses. And so for them to receive grain in summer was not only showing God's goodness, it was also showing fidelity. It was showing that there, there's, that, that Israel is monogamous, that they're, that they love God, that they're being obedient, that they're obeying Him and living under His rule, His gracious rule as King. But Israel wasn't like that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the best place to look is Joel 2. Turn with me to the prophet Joel. So it's in the minor prophets, one of the smaller books. You might miss it. You could look at the table of contents on the front of your Bible. But turn with me to Joel chapter 2. In the book of Joel, he's speaking to Judah before they're taken into captivity by Babylon. And the reason for the letter is two events that are not at all disconnected, all right? So also remember, the Feast of Booths, the last one we're going to go through, wine and olives, all right? So, um, or grapes and olives, wine and oil, all right? So he's talking to Israel who is, who is following idols, they're being unfaithful, they're, they're not following the Lord, and over here we have a bunch of droughts and a bunch of locusts that are eating the grain. There's not enough water for the grapes. They don't get any olives for olive oils. For all, not, well, I mean, I guess you can have plural olive oils. So what Joel is doing is connecting these two thoughts together. Your, your worship and the, and the curses that you're receiving in the land are not disconnected. 
They're very much connected. You're not worshiping God. You're not following him. You're not being faithful to him. That's why you're incurring these locusts and this drought in the land. Furthermore, the barley and the wheat. Think about this. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. So if you're an Israelite and you're trying to worship God and obey him by going to the feast, do you have the means to worship God to obey these feasts? If all the locusts and the drought have killed all the wheat and barley, can you go to the Feast of Harvest and celebrate? If all the droughts and the, the locusts have eaten all of the grapes and the olives, can you celebrate the Feast of Booths? No. It's a vicious cycle that's going on here. But look with me, Joel 2, verse 24 through 27. God calls Israel to repent. He calls them to repent. And this is what he says. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. God's grace allows for worship and celebration to be restored. Joel's talking about the feasts of Israel in this text. I will restore to you this famous verse. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, joy and blessing, and praise the name of the Lord your God. Worship who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in your midst, God's presence restored with his people. Think about what it's in our text, to the place where I will choose so that I will make my presence known. He'll be in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people shall never again be put to shame. So God's, God's promise to bless and to restore and that, and that his people will not be put to shame is found in this text. This text isn't just pointing to some closely followed day where, where God says, hey, you know what? I'll just give you some wheat and I'll give you some, some, I'll give you, I'll give you some water so that you can go to this feast. It's, Joel is pointing to a horizon that is close. There is a horizon for Israel where he is going to restore literally what the locusts have eaten. But he's also pointing to a future day where there will be a restoration, another horizon, if you will. The day when he restores his people where how can I, who have sinned so deeply and who am in this cycle of sinning and unable to worship and celebrate, God, how will you remove this guilt from me? By grace, and we find that horizon finding its happy fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ because he took the guilt, he took the shame upon himself and he traded us for his righteousness. He gave us his blessing and he bestowed on us his presence through the Holy Spirit. That's what we find in this text. And there's also a great later horizon that we see the great and awesome day of the Lord where he will vindicate his people and judge his enemies. So yeah, locusts will be dealt with, Christ will come and all enemies will be defeated and we'll enjoy the marriage feast of the lamb. Look with me at Joel 2. This is our, this is our hope for today. This is our hope for today. Joel 2 verse 28. So, where God rained literal water onto his people, what did 
God do for us as the New Testament people of God? Like rain, like rain, God poured out his spirit. Think about that with the feasts. Joy, celebration, worship, privileged, sacrificial worship. God provides all of that through Jesus Christ and he blesses us and he doesn't bless us with silly grain and nature valley oat bars. He gives us his presence through his spirit. The harvest that we have is not some silly possession like the new iPhone or a big house or the job with a big paycheck or the bonus and commissions that you get at work or your children are obedient in this physical life. Yes, there's some great blessings that God gives. The greatest blessing that we have as the church is that we were saved from sin to God and we enjoy the first fruits of what will be in heaven, his spirit in us. We have new life and life abundant in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the feast of harvest. We have much to celebrate and be joyful for. He pours out his spirit to us just like rain. He gives us himself. Furthermore, I, 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 I know I'm running on time, but I have to say this. Note that there is a period of time from that restoration that we see. That, so there's locusts that will be, we'll get rain for that. And then there's Christ will come. There is a period of time that Joel is talking about that will, will be between the spirit, the spirit comes, and then there's the awesome day of the Lord. That's what we would call in the classroom, the church age. So God's gonna come one day and between here and there is the age where we get to enjoy the Holy Spirit. Not just in Acts with the apostles and when the church was founded because we need a little nitro to make sure that the church started. The church age is defined by the spirit that is in the text of Joel 2. And that the, the, the primary is that we receive God's present, that worship and celebrations restored, that we can be and respond to what God was calling in the book of Joel to repent and to live holy lives. That's primary, but we also see the gifts present here. There are gifts. Your young and old will have visions. They will prophesy. If that makes you uncomfortable, let's read a little bit in Joel 2 for next time. Matthew can hit that next week. So we thank God for the new life that we have, which is distinctly and qualitatively different because of the fruits that God's given us in the Holy Spirit. We see that fulfilled in Acts 2 with the church. Peter just expounds what I did in Joel 2. And he says, this is it. This is the age of the Spirit. Christ has come and fulfilled now in those days, which is today. We're in the church age. We enjoy God's presence through the Spirit. So quickly, Quickly, we sprint through point three, celebrating God's steadfast love and faithfulness. The Feast of Booths, you might've heard it as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was in the fall. This one is great. I, if you just want simple encouragement this morning, if you're, if you're like a candle that's about to go out, this is the feast for you. This feast doesn't give a ground like the first two, remembering Egypt it, it, it says exactly what was at the very beginning, what I, what I say at the very beginning. Verse 14, this is the reason. Why should you celebrate the Feast of Booths? So that, you're, so that you will be all together joyful. 
The point of this feast is just joy. <laughs> it's awesome. It's in fall. And the idea behind this one, all the leftover grain you had from summer, you're collecting that and you're storing it. So you're storing your grain and you take all the wine that you had and all the olive, olive uh, oil that you had, wine and oil, and you store that in vats and it's twofold. One, you look back at the year and you say, thank you God for how you've provided everything that I've needed this year. Thank you. What reason there is to celebrate. Church, I don't know who else is thinking this. Kingsway Thanksgiving, that's what this is. That's what it is. When we line up on those mics and we say, thank you, Lord, for all this, we're looking at the vats of grain and of oil and of wine that the Lord has provided so faithfully this year because he saved us in Jesus. And we're just celebrating. We don't have to hyper-spiritualize it. Hey guys, make sure you ask, you know, those five sermon questions on, on, in, in, in group. No, just, just being together and celebrating as the people of God is reason enough. The second, the second, you look back at the year and you look forward to the future days. So you have all these vats of food and storage to get you through winter. And that, that is a picture of life. The winter we go through, God, there's a feast to come. Winter will be over one day. Winter will be over one day. And there will be joy, fullness of joy at the marriage supper of the lamb. It looks towards that future day. As Joel said, yeah, there's an immediate locust are being dealt with. Christ is coming. But one day God is gonna vindicate his people and he's going to rid all enemies. Sin and death will be no more. And this feast, look at verse 14. This feast, who is it to be enjoyed with? You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are with you you within your towns. Celebration within the people of God includes more than just people within your cliques and seasons of life. It includes various people from various places within various seasons. That is what Christian, joyous, celebratory, prescribed, sacrificial worship looks like. However, the celebrations that are happening three times a year, the common denominator, what is it? Is it the diversity? It's the grace of God. That is what unites us. That is the cornerstone of the church, Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ and his gospel of life. So for the people of God, as we look back at the kind provision of all that he's done. We look forward to that great day. Brothers and sisters, our hope this morning is grounded in God's mighty acts in the past and of his faithfulness to keep his promises in the future. He gives us testimony. This is, as Christians, we should have this paradigm. When unbelief is at our front door, we have to look back and find the testimonies of God and lay hold of them God gives us wonders and he gives us the wonder in the cross of Christ so that we can lay hold of the cross and go, I can trust you for the future. 
I can trust you for tomorrow. I can trust you. You've been so faithful to save me where I didn't deserve to be saved. You're, you're worthy of trust for tomorrow. So Christian, as we conclude, we need to regularly and intentionally worship God by not forgetting our new exodus where Christ died so that you might be saved. We don't forget the first fruits of our salvation, which is the new life, the new qualitatively different life that we have through the Holy Spirit. We don't neglect the storehouses of how God has been so kind to us this year, provided for us, been steadfast in his loving care for us. And we don't forget his promises of our future hope in heaven. That's the point of the feasts. That's all, it's, it's all of salvation in one really long sermon. It is all the goodness of God wrapped up in celebratory worship. All of salvation with joy. Hold fast, cling to the gospel, be joyful in the Lord. And so we're gonna conclude and we're gonna transition and so the band can come on up. We're going we're gonna to go to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal, we celebrate a new Passover meal as the church. Where that Passover lamb and you'd eat unleavened bread that was bitter and you saw this lamb that was slain, this blood spilt, reminded you that that, that should have been you. We as the church come together as the new people of God where Christ instituted bread and wine, representing grain and grapes. And we feast on Jesus. We look back at what he's done for us in paying for us and his, his body broken for us and his blood spilt in our place. But I want us to, well, I'll get it after we sing this song. Don't get ahead of yourself, Collins. All right, so we're gonna read Revelation 19. But as the ushers come forward, I want to invite you that if you are a Christian and you're a member of a church that preaches a gospel similar to the one you've heard this morning, I want to invite you to take this meal, to feast together as the body of Christ. And if you were honest this morning and you would say, you know, I'm not a Christ follower. Everything you've said, Caleb, about repenting from sin, this newness of life that you have in the Holy Spirit, this joy I don't have that. First off, I'm so glad that you're here. Secondly, I want to ask you to just let the meal pass you. But, but don't just sit there. I want, you, I want you to observe and see. I want you to see the celebration that's happening in this room. This is, this is a time where Christians get to thank God and celebrate worship as he's prescribed through the sacrifice of Jesus with joy, the meal that he's provided. So watch and see. And if Christ, if Christ seems interesting to you, if you see need in your life and you want joy, I want to talk to you. And I want you to grab somebody. If it's me, please stop whoever I'm talking to and talk to me about Jesus. Because there's, there's nothing more important in all honesty, nothing more important in this moment than for you to deal with the state of your soul before a holy God. Your sin must be reckoned with and there is reason to celebrate, but you must 
stop, turn, and lay your life on Christ who laid his life down for you.